Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to this week's episode of Mono Real Radio. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we're happy to be back. Happy to be back and sounding like we belong again. Yes, we don't sound like we're under the sea. No, no more. Let's just say that uh, it was a long journey, and Joe Walsh and I were the only two analog men left in the world. And that's as far as I'm going to go with the technical jargon, because most people will be bored to tears if I start the show with that. Yes, but we got it. We're back. We're happy. We finally figured it out. Oh, and this time it's built to last. You know what else is built to last? Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There's no doubt in my mind that this movie is built to last because unlike a lot of movies that you see that had cutting edge special effects 30 years ago that no longer hold up because the film is not being viewed on a VHS tape, on Blu-ray, this movie still looks fantastic. It does. And I'm really not a fan of movies that get converted to Blu-ray that were produced before the invention of Blu-ray. But this one looks nice. Mm-hmm. And most people grew up with this movie and have such a love for it. Your introduction to this movie is a little different, though. It is. I didn't see Who Framed Roger Rabbit until much later in life. Honestly, I don't remember how old I was. But my first introduction to Roger Rabbit was actually in the short Tummy Trouble that previewed before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I had the VHS of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and they ran this short before the movie actually started. So I thought that it was just Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman, and he was babysitting, and that was about the extent of it, not realizing that Roger's a tune, and there's a whole other behind-the-scenes side to Roger Rabbit. And that's exactly how this film starts it opens with roger babysitting baby herman when chaos ensues all to find out that it's a film set um mixed with live action that's how the movie opens um after all of that we intro eddie valiant a pi who's hired by rk maroon to take photos of jessica rabbit the wife of roger rabbit to kind of shake roger up because roger's blowing his lines and he just doesn't seem focused so uh there were some headlines that had run earlier in the movie that um suggested that jessica may not be faithful to roger and this is rk maroon's way of kind of grounding roger and 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 getting him back on track well eddie reluctantly agrees to take the job but does not want to go into toontown we don't know why just yet but we know he doesn't want to go there um he eventually agrees to take the job for the whopping total of $100. Now remember, this is supposed to take place in 1947. So 100 bucks was a lot of money. Uh, after he takes the gig, he goes, he's, he, he steals a, a ride on the red car, which is basically a public transportation trolley in Los Angeles. He goes to get on with the check, and the guy goes, what am I, a bank? You know, they want cash. So he jumps on the back and hitches a free ride and gets off at the terminal station bar. Uh, they find out that a company called Clover relief has bought the red car and they're cutting the staff um we then meet dolores who as it turns out lent eddie money from the bar which is why eddie took the gig to begin with he gets her camera and she mentions that the film in there is from their trip to catalina so 
it, it's sort of an awkward exchange and you you assume maybe they're just jaded exes and that's why and we find out later why it's much more complicated than that but we also know that obviously there's a history between the two of them Angelo walks in he's a character that uh, starts talking to Eddie and busting his chops about taking this job and Eddie knocks him off his bar stool and says that he won't work for tunes um, now the whole time we're wondering why why is Eddie so aggressive and it's because you then find out that Eddie's brother uh, was killed by a tune he had um, he had a piano dropped on his head uh, in Toontown. So Eddie then leaves and goes to the Ink and Paint Club and meets Marvin Acme, who's, he runs a gag company. That's the person who is supposedly uh, having this affair with Jessica Rabbit. And he goes there to catch her performance. And meanwhile, you have uh, Donald and Daffy Duck doing this dueling pianos thing, and it's all tunes. The thing is, the whole staff are all tunes. You have an octopus as a bartender. You have... um, Betty Boop. Betty Boop as a cocktail waitress. You have penguins as cocktail waiters. Um, And so Eddie starts talking to Betty Boop. And again, you get the feeling that there's a history there. Uh, Jessica Rabbit then comes on the stage and she stuns Eddie with her appearance and her performance. Obviously, he thinks he's going to see a rabbit. He doesn't think he's going to see this bombshell animation that is Jessica Rabbit. Um... After the performance is done, she sneaks off with Marvin Acme, and Eddie starts snooping around uh, the dressing room to get the photographs that he needs. And he catches them playing patty cake. Um, Like, really patty cake. But it's really patty cake. Like, you don't know what it's... It's not a euphemism. You think it is a euphemism, and it turns out it's actually patty cake. Uh, And he shows Roger the photos, and Roger's completely in denial. They give Roger a shot to calm him down, and he turns into this railroad whistle, and he just, he loses it, and he's breaking glass everywhere. Um, And Eddie tries to comfort him a little bit and says... Oh, good-looking guy like that. The dames will be knocking down the door. And Roger loses his mind and angrily storms off, actually runs through the window and just breaks the window and disappears. Now, up to this point, you haven't had a lot of interaction with Roger, so you don't really know who it is that you're supposed to trust here. Um, Eddie then heads back to his office where he finds photos of his deceased brother. Now he's going through the photos of the, you know, he had them developed and he showed them to uh, R.K. Maroon and Roger. It turns out those pictures from Catalina are not only of him and Dolores, but also his brother Teddy, who was killed by the tune. Um, We also see that he hasn't touched his brother's desk uh, and that at one point they were actually very big figures in Toontown. Uh, He has old uh, newspaper clippings where they helped... uh, They helped Goofy, Goofy, and I think they helped Donald and Huey, Dewey, and Louie. You find out that their dad was a circus performer, and they were like the clowns on the beat uh, when they were in the police department. The next morning, uh, they find out that Marvin Acme is killed. Um, uh, they, They believe that Marvin Acme was killed by Roger Rabbit, who had dropped a safe on his head in his factory. Uh, You then meet Judge Doom, uh, who is just, he's another one of these inherently evil 
uh, for lack of better term, Disney villains. Uh, he shows off his new dip, which can be used to kill tunes. Now, at this point, nobody knew how to kill a cartoon. You couldn't. You couldn't. Well, you can't. He figured out a way. Um, and he's basically using this to scare them into obeying the law, obeying his law. And you find out that he... He got elected judge because he bribed people in Toontown. So you know right away there's something shysty about him. We also meet the Weasels, who I believe are from uh, The Many Adventures of Mr. Toad. I believe that's where they're from. Um, And they're gangsters, and they help Judge Doom uh, find tunes that have broken the law, and they use it as a scare tactic. Um, Doom... At that point, you know, he kills this this shoe. It's like a little rubber shoe. That's the tune. And he dips it, and Eddie is so disturbed by it. And he leaves. He goes back to his office where baby Herman is waiting there for him. And he, he offers to pay him to help clear Roger um, and tells Roger uh, about the will, Marvin Acme's will, saying that he promised to leave Toontown to the Toons. Um... It's at this point that we find out that Roger's been hiding at Eddie's office. Um, he cuffs himself to Eddie as a joke, but then the weasels arrive because, as we also find out, Roger basically told everybody in town where he was going, but didn't mean to tell everybody in town where he was going, so it wasn't hard to track him down. So Eddie has to hide Roger, and after Roger, uh, after the weasels are gone, uh, he tells Eddie that he wrote Jessica a love letter because he found this blank sheet of paper because that's how he's going to win her back. Um, he went to Eddie for help because of the reputation he had in the past for helping the tunes. He goes to take a seat in uh, Teddy's chair, Teddy being his dead brother, and that's where, you know, Rod, uh, Eddie really flips out. Um, fast forward to them heading back over to the terminal station bar. Eddie takes him there, uh, so that he can, A, cut off the handcuffs and hide Roger because they had a secret room from po- from Prohibition. Because remember, this is 1947. Those bars with those rooms still existed. Um, and they figure that's a good place where they can stash him for a few days while he tries to solve this mystery. Uh, Roger reveals that he could have taken the hand- his hand out of the cuff at any time, but waited to do so when it was funny. You know, like even when it's not a scenario where comedy is appropriate you just you you start to see how Roger develops as a character his entire motivation for being on this earth is to entertain people make people laugh and make people very very happy Though Eddie was not laughing at this point. Not at this point. Uh, Eddie returns to his office when Jessica shows up to tell Eddie uh, that they wanted to blackmail Marvin Acme. This was RK Maroon that Eddie had been hired to take the pictures and the whole thing was basically um, set up and he threatened Roger's career if she refused to take place in these, you know, in this staged photograph. Dolores then comes in to tell Eddie that Cloverleaf wants Toontown, not Maroon, as Eddie had suspected. Um, but to keep this from happening, they need to find the will by midnight. Because as I said before, Marvin Acme owned Toontown and was leaving it to the tunes in in case he had passed away. He didn't want anybody else to have it. They find Roger performing in the bar, so Doom and the Weasel show up with Dip to kill Roger. Um, Eddie gives Roger a shot. He convinces Judge Doom, oh, let the dying man have a shot. Doom has no idea what's about to happen. So we have 
a rehash of the exact same, again, I think it was the same animation too, of this scene from R.K. Maroon's office where he becomes this train whistle and everything's breaking and exploding around him and then mayhem ensues and Eddie ends up getting in a fight with the weasels. He knocks over the canister of dip. He saves Roger and they're able to escape the bar. Uh, they go to steal the Toon Patrol car, which is the squad car that the weasels drive around and they use as like a paddy wagon to collect the tunes. But instead, they free Benny the cab, who knows Roger, and Benny was arrested for driving on the sidewalk. So you you can see that it's not just scare tactics that they look to, uh, you know, put on these these characters, but they actually do drive around trying to prevent these cartoon characters from committing what they believe to be crimes. A chase then ensues, but they escape, and Benny says if they ever need a ride, just stick out their thumb. Uh, they then go hide in a movie theater where Eddie tells the story of how a toon killed his brother during uh, a robbery investigation in Toontown, because at this point, Roger had no idea, and Roger's doing the old, you hate me, why do you hate me, you pull my ears, and he breaks it down for him and explains. Dolores shows up again, um... And the three plan on leaving together when a newsreel comes on informing us that R.K. Maroon has made a deal with Cloverleaf. So Eddie sees right there, that's the connection. So Eddie and Roger go to confront R.K. Maroon. Uh, Eddie goes upstairs and leaves Roger as a lookout, but Roger is then hit with a frying pan and he's dragged away. As it turns out, he was knocked out by Jessica. So you're thinking somehow Jessica's involved in this and maybe she's not as clean as she says that she is. Maroon admits to Eddie that he was blackmailing Marvin Acme so that he would sell Cloverleaf his factory. If he sold Cloverleaf the factory, Maroon would be able to sell them his studio in turn. Uh, and then he mentions that he doesn't want to see the tunes destroyed. But before he can explain what's going to happen next, he's shot by, uh, shot by an unidentified gunman. Uh, Eddie looks out the window and sees Jessica running away, so Eddie chases her into Toontown. Uh, they play cat and mouse for a little while, and Eddie believes that he's tracked her down when it turns out it's not her, but this this other tune called Lena, who looks at him as a love interest. Eddie runs out of her apartment, but the door that leads him outside, there's no floor. It says out of order. He doesn't realize it, so he basically runs out into the open, but he's got to be 100 stories up, and he starts to free fall. It's at that point that he meets a skydiving Bugs Bunny, and Mickey Mouse. And I think this is probably the only time in history outside of the end of the movie where those two characters are on screen together. I, I believe so. I don't think it's ever happened since then or before then. Or any Disney and Warner Brothers together for that matter. Correct. So he and they give him a spare tire. They say we have a spare. He's thinking it's a spare parachute. Turns out it's a spare tire. But right before he falls to his doom... Lena is there and catches him, but he's able to escape her. It's at that point that uh, Eddie and Jessica find out that it was Judge Doom that killed R.K. Maroon, and Doom threatens to kill them as he runs away. Uh, they inadvertently call Benny the cab because they're going back and forth. Let's go this way. Let's go this way. And Eddie kind of sticks his thumb out. He goes, no, no, no. Gingerbread Lane's this way. And because he put his thumb out, here comes Benny the cab. Um... So they start leaving Toontown to go after Judge Doom. It's at that point that Doom and the Weasels are waiting for them, and they throw Dip down on the road, which for all intents and purposes blows out Benny's tires, causing a car accident, and um, Eddie and Jessica are then captured by them, and they're being held in the Acme factory. Um, we find out 
that Doom is the sole stockholder in Cloverleaf and shows an invention of his that he's going to use to dip Toontown off the face of the earth. Basically, what he's doing is he's developing a freeway and he's going to sell this land you know, to the highest bidder to put fast food restaurants and hotels. He's looking at this whole thing as an investment. So, meanwhile, as this is happening, Roger enters the building, but he's quickly caught as well. Uh, Doom goes to dip uh, Roger and Jessica when Eddie performs this, like, comedy vaudeville act, this song and dance, killing the weasels as they die laughing. Um, Doom is then crushed by a steamroller, and it's revealed that he is the tune who killed Eddie's brother. Uh, as he goes after Eddie, he turns his hand into a giant, uh, saw and he lunges at Eddie. Eddie rolls over and grabs this cartoon punching hammer that you saw earlier in the, in the movie where you press a button and it's like a boxing glove comes out of the head of the hammer. When he does that, he hits this release valve from the machine that Doom had invented and it spills dip all over the place, killing Judge Doom. Uh, the rest of the characters from Toontown and the police rush the building with Benny because Benny's gone to the police to tell them what's happened. They find out that Marvin Acme used disappearing and reappearing ink. So when Roger goes to read the love letter, we find out that it's actually the will because the ink has returned to the paper. Uh, the tunes get control of Toontown and everybody walks off into the sunset. And what I love about this ending is that it ends with Porky Pig and Tinkerbell. Yes. You're used to Porky Pig ending the old Looney Tunes cartoons, and we've seen Tinkerbell, whether it be the wide world of Disney or uh, Disney Sunday movie, where she would come in and just tap her wand and it would end the program. The fact that they were able to incorporate both of them together, I thought was just brilliant. That was also contractual, and that's why, um, like you said before, you see Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse. Uh, the deal was that if Disney and Warner Brothers were going to be in the same movie together, it had to be one big star for one big star. It all had to be even. So that's also why you see Daffy Duck and Donald Duck performing together. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that looking back on this, looking back on this movie now, almost 30 years later, uh, it's 29 years, almost hard to imagine. Um, I think the movie holds up in every single way possible. I agree. Um, I think it, I think it holds up, but I feel like this generation is not as in tune with Roger Rabbit as we were when we were kids. I mean, he is at the Pop Century Hotel. They did give him a little section with a big statue or the big, uh, you know, fiberglass statues that they have there. Um, but all that's left in MGM, which, by the way, we're four episodes in. It's MGM to me. I will never call it anything else. Uh, but there's the billboard there. And he's not really represented in any other way other than Disneyland. So my fear is that, you know, this movie is kind of dying off because animation has come so far. I don't think that it's appreciated in the same way as it was because it was so innovative when we were kids. 
I don't want I don't know that it's that it's not appreciated. I think that Disney remember now this is not officially a Disney movie. Correct. This is Buena Vista and Touchstone. Now it would be rare for us to cover something that didn't come out under the banner of Walt Disney Pictures, but these were Disney animators working on a film that was produced by a company owned by Disney and they viewed Roger Rabbit as the second coming of Mickey Mouse. I mean, that's what they thought he was going to be. He was going to be a prominent figure in the Disney MGM studios. And you started to see those short films that you were talking about. It was Tummy Trouble and there was one where they went camping and there was another one where uh, they were in an amusement park. You, you saw those popping up. They were really grooming him to become the next big thing. But I think that we talked, when we did The Little Mermaid Show, we talked about Generation X and how the 80s were so unique. Mm-hmm. Roger, I think, was a very unique character that could have only existed in the 1980s, in spite of the fact that this film is about the 1940s. I feel like after Little Mermaid, when Disney took that turn and they had that renaissance of Disney animation and they became the, you know, they became so famous again for making these family-friendly films... They dialed back on everything Roger, certainly everything Jessica related. I feel like if there's any reason why Roger Rabbit seems like he's dying off, it's because Disney, in spite of his success, is almost writing him off intentionally. That's what I'm saying. And I feel like the memory of Roger Rabbit is not kept alive as some of the, you know, earlier movies. Well, you know, if you look at the film... Let's put our feelings aside about how they treat Roger Rabbit. Correct. Does the movie hold up? I I think from a filmmaking standpoint, it absolutely does. I love the script because I just feel that it's very snappy. And I think that it's well written. I think it's very intelligent. Um, And it doesn't ever really get boring. You know, it's a constant on the edge of your seat sort of thing. It's like... Just, it's a wonderful film noir. It's actually not a film noir. Uh, It has characteristics of a film noir, but it's more of a satire, um, which is also what the book was. Yes, this was a book before it was a movie. Um, That was one of the most shocking things to learn when we were doing research for today's recording. It was one of those things where, you know, like I said, I wasn't that familiar with Roger Rabbit as a kid. I thought it was just the Baby Herman shorts. So, you know, when I finally did see the movie, I was definitely into it. I personally love anything that goes behind the scenes. I love any movie where a back lot is exposed. Like, I love Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back for crying out loud just for the sole purpose that they're going behind the scenes. Um, So I had no idea this was a book, which now makes a little bit more sense to me of how this movie even got greenlit because I really wasn't sure with, you know, things like you were saying, like with Jessica Rabbit, how a movie like this would ever get made under the Disney banner. Um, So the book was actually a satire of like these old police novel or or these old detective detective novels and mysteries. and that's why I think it works so well as a film because it has the characteristics of film noir, but it's more of a satire and it's played so seriously by the live, 
the live actors that when it's juxtaposed against the tunes, that's what makes it so funny. It's almost like Ghostbusters. What makes Ghostbusters funny is that they're playing it straight. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's it's the, the Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis that really make it that funny. Right. Because part of that movie is almost Bill Murray calling them out for how ridiculous they are because he doesn't take any of it seriously. That's true. That's actually, that's a very good comparison. Yeah, I think, and, you know, to me in this movie, you've got another great team in Zemeckis and Christopher Lloyd together again. I know, the Back to the Future guys and, and Steven Spielberg. Yes. Now, Steven, uh, Steven Spielberg produced this. So all three of them were used to working together on, on Back to the Future. And now this was around the time that they were shooting the third Back to the Future movie. So they had such a rapport with each other and such a good partnership that it showed. It absolutely showed. It translated over very nicely. And I think that that is one of the reasons that this film does hold up so well. Um, you know, before we get into the nitty gritty of the film, if you'll endure, indulge the film nerd for a second, Go um, ahead. I want <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the animation and how they did put this movie together. Um, so, what's different about Roger Rabbit and all of the characters in this movie is that there is a lot more. Uh, I don't want to say depth to them, but they're a lot more rounded out. They're made to look a little bit more live action so that they fit in the world. And the way that they did this was, first of all, they had to shoot all of the movie live action. So they had to get the actor's performance right and they had to get all of the sight lines correct when an actor was talking to a tune. Um, so this is where Spielberg's brilliance came in, is that... Instead of just using, they did use a dummy that was about what you would consider a life-size Roger Rabbit to be. But what they did was they had a robotic arm. So a lot of the sight gags that you see, like Roger throwing plates, were all done with an animatronic. And that's how they got the sight lines so accurate. Um, as well as some of the other props were floating on strings. And that's how you were able to get the size and the scope of things. So they shot all of that. Then they printed it out frame by frame for every scene that was going to be animated. And then the animators would draw over it. And then when it came time for the ink and paint, for somebody like Roger, what they would do is they would, you know, get all of his colors on one cell and then do his highlights on another cell, his shadow on another cell. And that's how you get that that rounded out look. And I think that that's why this holds up so well, like you said, because the animation was just so ahead of its time. There's a scene, the scene in particular, when Jessica Rabbit performs at the Ink and Paint Club and she comes out and her her dress is glittering. Yes. I and mean, it's glistening. And it looked great on VHS tape. I can't believe how good it looks on Blu-ray. Good for you for looking at the dress. What can I tell you? <laughs> I'm a gentleman. <laughs> but, but all joking aside, though, I mean, you're talking about a movie that's 30 years ago. I mean, I watch movies today. I went to a movie this afternoon with my dad and I saw and it was heavily built on special effects. And those weren't as good as these effects were almost 30 years later. Yeah, it's it's amazing. The the thought process and the planning and just the the technological aspects that went into making this movie. And I think that, um, you know, definitely as a kid, 
you take that for granted because you're just like, oh, cool. There's this animated rabbit talking to a person and you certainly don't realize how perfect everything matches up. Right. And it just it feels so real because it looks like it belongs. And that's a big part of the appeal as a kid. But, you know, when you watch this movie now, um, getting back to the script, outside of it having these characters in it, by no means is this a kid's movie. The language is a little harsh. Um, you're not not so bad, and certainly not when you look at today's standards. You know, it's actually very tame versus what you see uh, today. But it's certainly a movie that's geared towards adults. But as a kid, you're able to watch the movie and really not get lost. And I think that that complements the screenwriters as well. It's something that you can watch and not be totally confused by. Oh, I disagree. I think if I had seen this when I was a kid, I would have been absolutely lost. I mean, I think that, you know, Doom is a clear enough villain. Um, you know, obviously the name itself is a little on the nose. Valiant and Doom, I think, were done very purposely. But I think that's also done as part of the satire. Right. Um, I think he's easy enough to identify as the villain. But I feel like you know, the subplot as far as him having stock in Cloverfield and all that. Cloverleaf. Cloverleaf, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cloverfield, yeah, that's a different, that's a different <laughs> franchise. Completely different franchise. Uh, Cloverleaf, you know, I feel like that's where a kid would get lost. And I think that even the way that it's done with the, um, the disappearing ink, um, when Valiant first sees the picture of the will in Maroon's pocket or uh, Acme's in pocket. Acme's pocket, um, you know, I, I feel like that's just hard to catch as a kid. It Even now, like they zoom on it, they draw attention to it, but I feel like that's, it gets a little lost. Well, I, I mean, I, I can see that. Maybe it's just because I watched this movie so many times when I was a kid that it made sense. Because I watched this movie a hundred times. This was one of my favorite movies growing up. So maybe I just saw it so many times that to me it, it just made sense. I've only seen it four or five. And yeah, I think there would have been a lot that went over my head as a kid. Even still, though, I think we can both agree that it is a well-written movie. And it definitely does keep you on the edge of your seat. Absolutely. But it doesn't get slow. Now, sometimes you watch these crime dramas for all intents and purposes, and they tend to slow down and get boring. This one, not at all. No, and the humor throughout it, too, is what really holds your interest. Right. Um, what I love is that old Hollywood look and feel. Yes. I just think it is so brilliant. I love... Every single set in this movie, especially uh, Maroon's office and the bar. I love that both of them have secret rooms. Yeah. You know, they both have the spinning walls. And um, there was so much attention to detail in these sets, not just making it look like Hollywood in the 1940s, but even all the nods to the animation. I mean, you do have, you know, certain throwaway lines that pay tribute and pay homage to certain things like for example the password to get into uh the ink and paint club is walt sent me of course being walt disney um but even some of like the posters on the wall um pinocchio 
comes in at the end of the movie, but there is a poster in one of the scenes of him and Lampwick. Yes. Forget who it's behind, but I it was very clear. And then there's even a nod to Felix the Cat as the theater masks. I think as you're going into Toontown on one of the archways, um, I forget exactly what scene it is, but they definitely have Felix the Cat as the happy and sad face, so they managed to get him in there too. Um, you know, and it's nice how many... Uh, cartoons they did manage to cram into this one movie because a lot of them they didn't get the rights for. Right. Um, but in that ending scene, you see so many of these classic characters. Like there's Clarabelle, there's Peter from Peter and the Wolf. That you really got to look at it carefully. But there's yeah. there's just a nice nod to to so many different characters and different animations. Yeah. Um. But when you break down these characters, they're just. I feel like they're well-developed. And again, that, that really is a compliment towards the screenwriters. Roger, you know right away, is sort of this neurotic clown. And he's just filled with tons of energy. And Eddie's a drunk kind of deadbeat. You know, I think Jessica Rabbit is one of the best femme fatales in the history of cinema. She's not bad. She's just drawn that way. A line that has become so iconic. It is iconic, absolutely. Totally iconic. Um, I want to say it was on, I think, AFI's list of the top 100 lines in cinema. It's definitely on a top 100, though. You know, it's the way that this movie just presents itself is so well. It's, it's another movie where within the first few minutes, with the exception of you not knowing who to trust... I do feel like you get an idea of exactly who these characters and who these people are. Absolutely. One of my um, my favorite in examples of uh, character development in this movie is like you had mentioned before when they show uh, Eddie's brother's desk and it's covered in dust and his, his glasses are still out. It wasn't touched since he passed away. But when they're moving the camera through the desk and showing all the pictures like from their days, um, you know, their early days as detectives and police officers. And then they show the picture, like you said, with their dad. Uh, it was the picture of him and the Ringling Brothers. Um, and there's what I love about that so much is that there's no throwaway line. There's no monologue explaining the backstory. It's just such a simple thing. And it's the perfect touch, and you just get such a clear picture of who he is, and, and why sad. he's so sad. It's a, yep. it's it, the way it's shot is just, it's that slow pan, and you really feel bad for him. Yeah, you feel bad for all of them because you know so many people have been affected by this, from Eddie and Dolores down to the tunes, because they meant so much to that community. It's a very powerful scene, and again, it it, it depicts a character who's never going to speak a word, and you're actually, with the exception of a couple of pictures, you're never going to see him on film. Right. And I feel like that is just so well done. Um, R.K. Maroon, you know he's dedicated uh, dedicated to his craft, but he's just so greasy nonetheless. Yeah. You just tell he's so slimy. Yeah, you don't trust him from the jump. And we talked before about the partnership between... Christopher Lloyd and Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg but Judge Doom is so maniacal and insane he was absolutely outstanding casting he was I want to say that no one else 
could have played it, but do you know who was in big time consideration for this role? I'd love to know. Tim Curry. And I could totally live in a world where Tim Curry was Judge Doom. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Pennywise, nope. come on. Yeah. It's funny. Um, Christopher Lloyd is is has had so many iconic I know. roles. And the funny thing is, for at least that, you know, in this case, he's linked to Tim Curry, who was almost uh, cast. Do you know who was going to be cast for Doc Brown in Back to the Future before he took it? He wasn't their first choice. Who? John Lithgow. Wow. Lithgow turned it down. Wow. Yep. So so you ended up getting Christopher Lloyd. That is a character that I don't know anybody else could have played that way. I yeah. don't I mean Tim Curry would have been great, but I just you know what it is? I think Tim Curry I mean, yeah, he was scary as Pennywise, but I feel like he would have been too comical as Judge Doom. Like, I feel like he would have just been a little too eccentric. See, I think because you had him as Pennywise, he could definitely pull off the, the creepy and disturbing aspect. But, like, to me, he is a cartoon. Like, I'm thinking specifically of Home Alone 2 when he's standing at the hotel reservation desk and his smile curls up like the Grinch. I think, you know, he's like Doom incarnate. He can toe that line. But that's not to take away from what Christopher Lloyd did because he was incredible. Yeah. Um, We've sung the praises of Christopher Lloyd we've not hit on Bob Hoskins at all oh. yet and we are remiss for not doing that because he's incredible and same thing he's another person that I think is so tied to our childhood I mean he was Mario in Super Mario Brothers he was Smee in Hook and he's our Eddie Valiant he I mean he drives the movie Absolutely. He drives this entire film. I mean, this the, he's got the keys to the car, and he just knows how to do it right. I mean, yes, you had a lot of very talented actors and actresses in this movie, but 90% of the screen time, if not more, is him. And so much of it is him either talking to himself or talking to a doll, a doll while Charles Fleischer is off screen. And just... What amazes me about his performance in this movie is how he was able to handle the physical aspect of it. Yes. And make it look so convincing. Yes. Um, I think probably the best scene where it comes across just how talented he is and how much he carried everything is the movie theater scene. Um, I mean, now that I know how they did match up those sight lines, you know, I think it was just as much the filmmakers as the actor, but just the way that he's kind of glancing off to the side, but he kind of also won't look at Roger either. That's what makes it really feel like somebody else is there is that, you know, he makes it so obvious that this is something that he's uncomfortable to talk about. And the fact that he can do that without somebody really there, it's it's just so impressive. And he emits so much emotion. Yeah. You know, essentially at this point he's talking to he's talking to a rubber doll. Yeah. I mean, he Bob Hoskins unfortunately is no longer with us, but he was one of just those classically trained actors that was able to not take himself too seriously and was able to 
devote himself to a role. And when he went in, he went all in. Yeah. And it shows every time you see him on screen. Yeah. You know, whether it's in one of these films that you mentioned, Hook or Super Mario Brothers or Who Framed Roger Rabbit or when he was in Hollywood Land with Ben Affleck. I mean, he he's just so good in everything. Versatile. Really versatile. Yeah, very much so. And he's an actor that is... Uh, you know he's he's sadly missed, and uh, we were happy, we were lucky to have him. Uh, certainly, I think we were lucky to have him as our uh, as our Eddie Valiant, no doubt about it. Um, there's a line in this movie that Dolores delivers when they're explaining um, what happened to um, Eddie's brother, and she tells everybody for the first time that Eddie's brother was killed by a tune and that they had dropped a piano on his head. And the thing is, it's it's not a line that is that serious. It's 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 actually a very silly line, but because she delivers it so seriously and so deadpan, it almost makes it even funnier. That's exactly what I was talking about before is how this is shot like a film noir, so they are taking it very very seriously. And and that's it. It just punches you that line because it's ridiculous. It's it's out. Of, it's it's completely outrageous. But she delivers it. Drop the piano on his head. Like she says it with so much pain that you laugh at it. But you, it's not. But it's not funny. I almost feel like I'm not supposed to laugh at it. I know. It's like I said. It's it's just one of my favorite lines in the movie. Um, this movie was good about having little throwaway lines and things that were buried like when the weasels uh use the line for the first time you hear it is when they're in eddie's office when roger's hiding and and the weasel goes you know one of these days you're gonna die laughing you know it was they planted it very intelligently because it's it's not an uncommon phrase like oh you're gonna die laughing like it's just you would never think that that was foreshadowing what was to come Right. They were just very, they were very smart like that. Right. And um, just as much as there were lines that foreshadowed certain things, there were also nods, you know, like I was talking before about when they said, Walt sent me as the password. But there was also a nod to Back to the Future um, when they're doing the chase and they come to the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know Back to the Future better than I. And yeah. I, I forget the line, but you probably know it. But it, it, it's something, you know, something having to do with the chase. Oh, I, without, without knowing exactly what it was, I couldn't pinpoint it. But I, you know what? I'll have to go back and watch Back to the Future this week. I'll watch it back to back. I'll have a little Christopher Lloyd and Robert Zemeckis marathon with myself. And I'll come back on next week and I'll see if I can pinpoint the line that you're talking about. There was also another really funny line when they're hiding out in the bar and they're in that, that prohibition room. And Roger is talking about when, when um, Eddie, Eddie says to Dolores, check the probate. Yes. The, and he goes, yeah, you know, my Uncle Thumper had a problem with his probate. <laughs> He's talking about his prostate, but Uncle Thumper. You know, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. it's a quick little line. So you you see that even even uh separate from the film in terms of filmmaking and the studio, you see that from a character standpoint, there's a lineage here. Mm. What's funny about that line too is though, you know, a kid's going to catch it and be like, "Oh, Thumper, it's a nod to Bandy ha. Huh? Bambi, that's cute." But as an adult, too, you know that 
bunnies tend to procreate rather rapidly. So I I think that's one of those lines that's, you know, funny for both. You can appreciate it both yeah. ways. Um what uh what I what I really like about this movie as well is that the music is great and it lends itself well to the time period. Yes. And it definitely it's it helps drive the narrative. It's it's almost like you have another actor on screen. This isn't a musical in the sense that a lot of the other Disney films that we talk about are musicals. There's only three scenes where you have song and dance, and that's Roger's scene when he's doing merry-go-round broke down in the term um, in the terminal station bar. You have Jessica Rabbit singing at the Ink and Paint Club, and then you have Eddie doing his version of. Roger's performance for all intents and purposes because it is merry-go-round broke down at the right, Acme factory. Right. Um, but I just feel like the instrumental music is just so good. I think this was Alan Silvestri that did it, who I think actually, yeah, he was he was used in Back to the Future as well. Huh. So so and the more you the more you think about it, that music kind of has that little Back to the Future-ish feel to it. Put more in that 1947 old Hollywood feel, not so much the modern 1984 feeling. Right. Yeah. But they just like to... They were Kevin Smith before Kevin Smith was Kevin Smith. (laughs) How do you feel about that? Steven Spielberg is the original Kevin Smith. Oh, God. (laughs) I I was going to say, the the takeaway from here is make friends with Spielberg. Yeah, basically. Harrison Ford. How many times has he used him? Richard Dreyfuss. He's used him a bunch of times. It's like how now we're going to have Dumbo come out and who are you seeing but Danny DeVito and Michael Keaton. Right. It's like watching Batman Returns again. Right. (laughs) But at the circus. Batman goes to the circus. (laughs) Oh, man, alive. But yeah, but it was just really good music and and well done. Um, There's hidden Mickeys in this movie. Yes. What did you get? The bombs. Yep. The bombs at the Acme factory. Absolutely. You know what's interesting, too? When you look at this movie... Now, like we said, this was touched on in Buena Vista. Um, This movie has a very similar feel to the uh, Warren Beatty, Al Pacino, Madonna, Dustin Hoffman, Dick Tracy film. Yeah. That was also put out by Touchstone a year after Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Were they only a year apart? That was 1990. I'm surprised that they would do them in this clip because they do have that that same tone. Very much so. It's as funny as it sounds. The uh, the 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 Dick Tracy movie was a little bit more cartoony because it was meant to look like it took place in like a 1940s comic book. Mm. There are parts of it that are that but it's done intentionally, right? Because uh, that was sort of satirical as well. Um, not the same way that this was, but but kind of close. The difference between the two is that you look at and you go, oh, I'm watching a comic book. But when you see Eddie Valiant in Toontown and he's fully immersed in that setting and he's the only live action thing there and it's all animated around him. It just goes to show how good the special effects were, how talented the special effects team was and the artists. And again... Bob Hoskins. What I love about that too is that it's also, you know, it shows how good that the story was because 
what we haven't really hit on yet is how these tunes are sort of being shunned back into Toontown. And by the time we get to the end of the movie, it's come full circle in that, you know, in the will, the tunes are in control of Toontown. So we've gotten to the point where the tunes are taking back over and they're in control of their own destiny for lack of a better word but it's also the character arc of eddie valiant because now when we hit merry-go-round breakdown he has to become a tune he has no choice yeah so it's such a nice parallel to how the tunes are coming back to the forefront and he's also you know returning to his former self of where he's their hero yeah, and it's it's nice to see him come back around that way. As we had stated earlier when we gave the rundown of the film, it's clear not just when you're in the office, but when he's having the conversation with Betty Boop, that he clearly has a history there, and, and a lot of those tunes are so familiar with him. And you could it was, it was interesting because you're like, he doesn't want to work for tunes, and he takes it so personally, and he refuses to go to Toontown, but the only cartoon character up to that point that he could share a smile with and like a nice conversation was Betty. Yeah. And what I love about that is she's still in black and white and she ha- she's she's been relegated down to cocktail waitress and she goes, yeah, well, you know, it's been hard since cartoons went to color. You know, it's like she was a black and white character. She's not going to become a character drawn in color. So it shows she's sort of been relegated to second fiddle because now she she is not able to keep up with the rest of technology and that, that brilliant technicolor you hear so much about. You're so right. But that I think is why he gets along with her is because they're both washed up. They're both has been. They're relics. Yeah. They're both relics. Um, so uh, I said to you before, when we started that the movie holds up in my opinion, I think the special effects are as good, if not better than most of what we see now. I think the story is, a lot of fun. I think the characters are endearing. Um, and I think that it's a terrible shame that this movie is slowly becoming forgotten about. I think that's it. I, I think it holds up in almost every aspect, but I think people take it for granted that like, when you put it up against something like Toy Story, like that was the groundbreaking movie, you know, for I don't want to say our generation because our generation was more Little Mermaid Beauty and the Beast Aladdin but that was like the next big thing and I think that when you put this up against it the technological achievements of Roger Rabbit kind of get they they kind of pale in comparison but like for me what they achieved here like this is one of those things that I wish Walt had been alive to see yes I wish he was alive to see Toy Story and to see what his vision was able to do and what they were able to carry out. But I think he would have been so impressed by what they did to make this movie. And it it was everything that he did. It was the animatronics. It was the animation. I mean, if it, you know, it would have been him if it wasn't Spielberg. I mean, Spielberg did a fantastic job, but you know, conceptually, I think these were all things that, that Walt was doing before. You're right. Because animation aside, the animatronics, he was so into new technology. 
And he was the one that developed Mr. Lincoln for the New York World's Fair right. in the 60s and right. Carousel of Progress. Right. Yeah, he was all about that and, and the birds from the Enchanted Tiki Room. You know, he, he had such a love for that sort of technology. I think you're right. I think he would have he embraced what they did to, to develop this film the way that they did and to make it as good as they did. And even predating Mary Poppins, you know, he did do the live action Alice. But instead of putting the animation in the live action world, he put the live action girl into the animation. Right. So, you know, it was the blueprints were were all there. Mm -hmm. Now, this movie actually was supposed to have a sequel. They had developed a sequel where it was it was like um, it was like a prequel. It was sort of a weird concept where I think Roger had to go save Jessica because this is the truth. She had been captured by the Nazis to make propaganda films. And instead they used Donald Duck. (laughs) (laughs) But Spielberg for a time, you know, sort of he did touch upon that as a, as a subject. I mean, when they made Indiana Jones, yeah, yeah, that that came, you know, the 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 Germans that came up a lot, um, but supposedly he didn't really like how the film was being developed. And by the time they had gotten around to something that maybe they could have done, he had started to work on Schindler's List. That was a movie that just fell into production hell and sat there for a long time. And even up to about five or six years ago, they had said that they were going to do. They were still going to do this Roger Rabbit sequel, but then unfortunately Bob Hoskins passed away because he was ready to rep- reprise his role. But It's interesting that you say that because, you know, like I said before, I, I have a fear that Roger Rabbit is dying out. I don't know that I want to see a sequel. Like, I, I can tell you this right now. I don't want to see, as much as I think that Walt would have appreciated the technological achievement... I don't want to see this done as computer animation. No. I think if you're going to do it, you got to stick to the roots and and do it as the hand-drawn. No, I don't care that you had to do over 82,000 hand-drawn cells for this. You're going to do it again if you're going to do a sequel. But I I don't know that I that I need a sequel just I- because this was so innovative at the time and to me Roger Rabbit is so iconic. I I don't know that we need that. And I'm afraid it would ruin it. I'm afraid it would take away. I don't think you necessarily need a sequel. Like I'm not I'm not busted up that there's no sequel coming soon. Um but even up to a few years ago, they were going to still do the sequel and they were going to bring back Eddie Valiant as a ghost. Like it's just these weird concepts mm. they had and and then Robert Zemeckis finally said he's like the higher-ups at Disney, in other words, he's talking about Bob Iger, says they definitely don't like Roger and they certainly don't like Jessica. And that seems to be the big reason why they put all things Roger on hold permanently. Well, see that to me, I mean, yes, Jessica is va va voom, but that is no reason to just let this movie fade out. And that was actually going to be my plea is parents, please show your kids this movie. I'm not talking about young, young kids because I feel like between Jessica Rabbit and Valiant's alcoholism, you might have a lot of explaining to do. But when it is age appropriate, don't let this one die out. You know, 
kids are going to discover Little Mermaid. Kids are going to discover Aladdin. Aladdin is still on Broadway. I That's what I'm saying. I don't know how other than... I would hate for a kid to go to Pop Century, look up at the Roger Rabbit statue and be like, who is that? And that's what I'm afraid is happening. I remember when I saw this movie for the first time and it was like it was like magic because you always wish that you could bring your cartoons to life. Mm. This movie actually made that happen. This movie was special. It still is. It almost like Roger kind of reminds me of a dog a little bit. I mean, like, yes, in the behaviors, like, you know, like you see when he feels bad, his ears do get pinned back. Like it's, it's kind of obvious like that, but like, you know, he, he's got like that, that loyalty and, you know, just as a character, like he, he's just so great. I know he's incredibly endearing because he, you know, he does have all of those qualities, like you said, but he also makes mistakes, just like any other person would make mistakes. He's just, for, for, a, for an animated character, he just seems so real. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of like that they, they went with him as like this Tex Avery sort of character with that slapstick comedy. And when they did the animated cartoon that started the movie with Baby Herman, I love how it still looked like a 1940s cartoon. It wasn't something where... They clearly used 1980s technology and it looked like something like, you know, sometimes when somebody parodies something and they do it present day, Mm. but it's supposed to represent something from 20, 30 years ago. And you look at it, you go, well, they did it in the style, but it looks like something that was made last week. You mean like the village? Yes. (laughs) But that that's a great example of it. But in this case, that cartoon looks like it was something made in the 1940s, not something made in the 1980s. Even just from the opening credits, you do get those like red bands. It looks like Looney Tunes. Yeah, the the maroon cartoons. You can tell where it's from. You can tell the time period. You can tell everything. Yeah, the bubble letters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a movie that I I wish that they would have done more with him in the parks. He was on parade floats. I just, I do wish you would eventually see more of him. I don't, I don't, I just don't see them killing the brand though. I don't, I I feel like he's got to come back eventually. I don't see them killing the brand, but I'm wondering if it also has to do with, um, you know, yes, he's an endearing character, but like he's comprised of so many characters. Like there were so many, not, you know, he's got like the Mickey gloves and the goofy pants and, and kind of a porky pig speech. I'm wondering if it has to do with the influence from all these other animations and that that's what they're having trouble with. It could be. It shouldn't be, but I don't know. Maybe that's a reach, but anyway, like I said before, parents, don't let them die. We have a responsibility here. Yes, we have to keep Roger alive. <laughs> you know where you probably will be able to show your, your kids Roger for the first time if you don't own a copy of the film? And that's on the Disney streaming service. I don't know that for certain. I don't know that the Touchstone or Brenna Vista stuff is going to make its way over there. Mm. But it just might. And I know they came out this week. We now have an idea. I think late 2019 is when this is officially going to launch. And from what we understand, it sounds like it's going to be somewhere in the ballpark of about $6 a month. That's not bad. It isn't, 
but they said that they would have to have about 40 million subscribers a month. This was one of these trade magazines that did their financial anal- you know, mm. analysis on it. Supposedly, for Disney to break even on what they're putting into this, they'd have to have 40 million subscribers a month. They're certainly not going to get that. But Disney's also not hurting for money. Right. I mean, they have enough money where they can float this for a few years if they have to. I mean, I I think the price point is consistent. You have to keep it in line with Netflix and Hulu. Otherwise, nobody's going to do it. But I think they're being smart. And I think that they could hit those numbers because they are already doing a a lot of original content for it. Like they're going to have Lady and the Tramp go straight to... To the streaming service. Straight to streaming, right. It's not getting a theatrical release. And they're already casting up for that. So I think, um, you know, I, I think they'll play their cards right. I think they could hit it. Yeah. I, th- I can't wait to see it. I'm, I'm excited to see the back catalog. I'm wondering if the back catalog is going to stay consistent. Like, I'll tell you who does it really well is WWE. WWE, when they launched their network, they were like the first ones to do it. Mm-hmm. And they have their pay-per-view events on the network. But they also have a back catalog of all of their pay-per-views that they've done in the history of the company, more or less. High uh, Replays of the Monday Night Raws and the Smackdowns. But they also went and put out... You know, like the the biographical and the best of DVDs that you'd see at the store. Like, chrono- like uh, you know... Uh, being the chronicle of a wrestler's career, they have those on there full length. So I'm and and they they don't they don't take any of it down. They don't rotate any of the content. They just keep adding to it. Mm. So I'm interested to see if that's what Disney does, or if they're going to add and pull things, kind of how Netflix does it, just to keep it interesting. That'd be kind of cool though if they did like additional content like that. Like if you could stream a parade or a fireworks show or something from the parks. Oh, like if they gave Disney Park uh, Disney Park blog like a live feed mm-hmm. because they'll go onto Facebook and Twitter sometimes and they'll do live feeds. Yeah. Oh, if they did like one a night. Mm. I'd watch. I'd watch it every night. I'd love it. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We had a lot of fun with this one. Make sure that you check out all of the social media, the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, where we're going to announce the next film that we're doing. And you know what? You can actually feel free to comment there as well. And We want to know which one you want to see us do next. Believe me, we check every comment. We check every tweet. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.